announcements, actually. Elements of the plot. Jealousy, cold-blooded murder, rape, revenge, genocide, conspiracy, betrayal, incest, prostitution, anger, war, and general bloodshed. Is this the latest Quentin Tarantino movie? Some R-rated, NC-17 rated Hollywood movie starring Vin Diesel or Mickey Rourke? What, is this a, is this a new novel, the latest novel just pushing the envelope that should be banned from public school libraries? Now you know where I'm going with this. This is the Old Testament. The writings of the law and the prophets, the candid, honest, no sweeping the dirt under the rug, history of the Jewish nation, and the first couple thousand years of its existence and its identity as God's chosen people. And today's passage is part of that candid, honest history. I was recently with someone who wanted to play me a few songs that he had written. And I asked, any chance you've written a song about when Lot's daughters got him drunk so that he could get them pregnant? And amazingly, he hadn't written any songs, so that's why we didn't have any special music that really tied in with the sermon today. Sorry about that. The end of Genesis chapter 19 is not the most family-friendly passage of Scripture. It's the part that the children's Bible leaves out. <laughs> Thankfully, they, uh, it's kind of hard to put all this in kids' languages. I mean, earlier last week, we had an attempted gang rape, and now we've got drunken incest. It's just, they just leave it out. But it's not just the kids that we don't like to talk about this with. According to James Montgomery Boyce, there are many preaching books that declare this text unpreachable, and they just skip over it entirely. I would have preferred to just include it with last week, but hey, <laughs> this is the schedule that Dr. Dave set out. Yeah, yeah he's out of town. <laughs> Convenient. But it is the inspired words of scripture, and for some reason, Moses included this when he was writing his history of the Jewish nation. So we're gonna see what we can glean from this, what I would say is a perplexing, appalling account. So let's turn either to your Bibles or to the outline. Genesis chapter 19, verses 30 through 38. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two, young, with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, our father is old, there is not a man on earth to come in to us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. 
He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him that we we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus, both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. So here we have a story. Perhaps ring some bells for you. It's it's very similar to the end of Noah's story. In both cases, you have a dramatic judgment event where the man of God survives. And you just, just wish that Moses would have just left it at that. Remember, Noah's out on dry land. Lot and his daughters have escaped Sodom's destruction without being burned or turned into salt like his wife. But then Moses feels compelled to tack on these extra stories, uh, true stories. In Noah's case, he got drunk and one of his sons laughed at him and is rebuked for that when Noah sobers up. But here, Lot's daughters are afraid that they will never be in contact with men who they can have children with. So they rather desperately turn to the only man around. So as we read this story, we see that Lot has come to the end of his life, an old man, and Lot's life ends in fear and dishonor. As we think back over Lot's life, we can see kind of a downward slide Remember, Lot was initially part of the group that left Ur with Abraham, or Abram, when God initially called Abram out to pursue blessing, to go to the promised land. And and Lot is the loyal nephew that goes with him. But after some time, they've they've grown their their tribe, their uh, possessions, and they feel like they need a little room And so they need to split. And so Abram gives Lot a choice. You you decide where you want to set up your tents, where you want to set up all your people and your belongings, and I'll take the other area. And Lot chooses the area around Sodom because it was more fertile. And so he splits with Uncle Abram. Now apparently Lot fit in so well with what we find out is a very wicked community. But he fits in so well that he actually becomes a leader, a judge who sits at the gate to give judgment. We do find out that Lot was essentially the only righteous man in the city of Sodom. But fitting into the community has its downside as as the men have no hesitation to demand that he release his guests. Remember that from last week's passage, the angels have come and visited him and the men of the city want him to release them. 
he offers his virgin daughters to them instead. Finally, the angels drag him inside, and then later, they, as the men are blinded, they drag Lot and his family out of the town right before the Lord totally destroys it. And then, as I've alluded to, you remember, his wife looks back and is turned to stone. To salt. Sorry. And now Lot is so afraid, for some reason, of being in the town of Zoar, even though he's sort of requested this, and, and God has said, I will not destroy that city if you go to it. But for some reason, he's still afraid. Maybe he feels the end of his life, and he just doesn't want to deal with peoples in these towns and what they'll do to him. Maybe they think he's uh, going to be a horrible influence on him or blame him for what happened to Sodom. I don't know. It doesn't exactly say, but he's afraid, and so he is hiding in a cave. And the irony that Lot kept virtuous in the middle of all the decadence of Sodom, but now he falls into gross sin in an isolated place away from temptation. James Montgomery Boyce compared Lot to the prodigal son because they both set their sights on a distant land and they went and they lived among party people, even if he wasn't as involved as maybe the prodigal son. But the difference is that, and when they both hit rock bottom, the prodigal returns and Lot never does. I mean, why didn't he go back to Abraham? As far as we know, he lost everything. That's where most of us would have gone to our people. But for some reason, Lot is hiding out in fear. It's a sad ending to a sad life. One that started with promise but went downhill after bad choices, putting himself in the wrong place at the wrong time. Well, as we look at his family, we know that his wife has already looked back and the Lord has followed through on his promise to judge anyone who looked back on the destruction. And then we have this account bringing Lot's daughters, telling us what happened to them. And those daughters had lived righteously as well growing up in the midst of this very decadent culture. They had stayed pure for their weddings, but now they had seen the destruction of the wicked cities, the deaths of their fiancés, and they'd experienced the humiliation of being offered as objects to the men of the city to use. And now they are all alone, and, and they think there's only one hope for perpetuating Lot's line. Now I'm gonna step away from the text for a little bit. I think this is as good as place as any to just pause and, and talk a little bit, speak frankly about something I'd like us to consider. I know that this isn't what the text is necessarily concerned with, but as we've been dealing with issues of rape and incense, I wanna wander into some maybe dangerous territory, but perhaps throw out a lifeline to anyone who has been sexually abused. 
there's always a good chance that someone in a congregation this size has been sexually abused and never told anyone, buried that fact. But potentially more than one in four women and one in six men have been sexually assaulted in their lifetimes. It said that, one study said that up to 93% of child sexual abuse victims know their attacker. There's a, there's a wonderful book that I'm reading by one of my seminary professors and his wife, and it's not a dry seminary book. It's very good. It's called Rid of My Disgrace by Justin and Lindsay Holcomb. The, the subtitle is Hope and Healing for Victims of Sexual Assault. And it talks about how sexual abuse brings on feelings of shame, guilt, anger, and despair. On the very first page of the first chapter, they say this. This is sort of their thesis where they're going. Um, disgrace, what, what many victims feel from being sexually assaulted. Disgrace destroys, causes pain, deforms, and wounds. It alienates and isolates. Disgrace makes you feel worthless, rejected, unwanted, and repulsive. Disgrace is the opposite of grace. Grace is love that seeks you out even if you have nothing to give in return. Grace is being loved when you are or feel unlovable. Grace has the power to turn despair into hope. Grace listens, lifts up, cures, transforms, and heals. A good definition of grace is one-way love. And this is the, op the opposite of assault, which was one-way violence. So to any who experience one-way violence, God brings one-way love, and the contrast between the two is staggering. So the Holcombs urge victims to reach out first to the Lord, because ultimately that is where healing is found. Burying it, denying it doesn't work. Self-help, self-healing only goes so far. You need God's healing grace. But they also recommend that you need people to talk to. You need to be honest about your story. Bring other people that you trust into your pain. You need healing. You need to talk. You're invited to get in touch with our staff counselor, John Lauber. His number is on our website, or I can give you his card. I just didn't want this uh, opportunity to pass to speak those words. But back to the story, back to the text. The two daughters, as we see, as we read, they do succeed in their plans. And they both conceive children. The older daughter calls her son Moab, which means from father. And I don't know if she's just being honest or brazen and defiant, but it's sad. And the younger daughter calls her son Ben-Ami, which means son of my people, which doesn't quite sound as bad, but when you understand what happened, it essentially means the same thing. 
So we've got this story. That's really all we hear from Lot. He goes away. Abraham moves on. We're going to hear a lot more about Abraham's life. What do we do with this story? Where do we take this? What are some legitimate applications? We could probably spend some time and and take this story as a warning against drunkenness. It wouldn't be a bad thing. Discussing the evils of alcohol abuse. The U.S. Department of Justice report on alcohol and crime found that alcohol abuse was a factor in 40% of violent crimes committed in the U.S. Drunk people lose their inhibitions. They do all sorts of horrible and embarrassing things that they wouldn't do sober. That's a terrible witness for a Christian to be seen acting this way. But I don't think that's the concern of the text. So I don't want to make that our primary application. I think Moses has a very specific reason that he's tacked this story on, that he's included this. It's, Moses has very selective history, but it's theologically selective, and he wants to show the truth about the shameful start of two groups of people, the Moabites and the Ammonites. In Deuteronomy 2, Israel is warned that when they come into the promised land, they are not to take the lands of the Moabites or the Ammonites. And they're given a reason because these lands were given as a possession to the descendants of Lot. So we see that God doesn't immediately punish them. He doesn't desert them. He provides for them. He gives them land and protects it when the Israelites are wiping out other tribes and bringing God's judgment on them. They were, in a sense, part of Israel's extended family. However, the Israelites were prohibited from intermarrying with those tribes. They could not arrange marriages with any of Lot's descendants. And Moses makes this clear why. It's the shameful beginning of the tribes. Uh, Ezra chapter nine records that Ezra weeps when he hears that the Israelites have intermarried with a number of foreign tribes and the Moabites, the Ammonites are included. And he has to call the people to repentance. If you spend a lot of time in the prophets, you'll also uh, remember I I think the last place the Moabites, the Ammonites are mentioned is in Ezekiel, chapter 25. And God declares, say to the Ammonites, because you have clapped your hands and stamped your feet and rejoiced with all the malice within your soul against the land of Israel, therefore behold, I have stretched out my hand against you and will hand you over as plunder to the nations." I will lay open the flank of Moab from the cities. I will give it along with the Ammonites to the people of the east as a possession that the Ammonites may be remembered no more among the nations and I will execute judgments upon Moab. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Ultimately, God says, you laughed at Israel. You rejoiced when they were judged, when they were beaten. 
uh, in another place, it says they offered no help, no food or water when Israel came out of Egypt. It's this extended family that has turned its back on Israel and they're punished for it, they're judged for it. And I guess to sum it up, the, the descendants of Lot are a lot like Lot himself. They're relatives of the Lord's chosen ones and they're protected for a time. But ultimately they are disgraced and they are judged for poor behavior. But wait, there may be one Moabite you remember. She gets her own book, the Moabitist Ruth. You remember her? From this somewhat cursed line. And the, the book of Ruth is not included in the scriptures just because it's a beautiful love story, redemption, second chance at love. My brother pointed out to me something that a Bible student named Aaron Cummings said that there, there's a parallel in the Ruth story to this story. I would never have come up with this on my own, but he, he said, Ruth comes to her kinsman redeemer, Boaz, who is a relative in a sense, and essentially offers herself to him. But he is honorable and persuades her to act righteously. And that is the restoration of the Moabite people. And Ruth is part of the line of Jesus' ancestry. So God has shown them grace and included them. We have all kinds of characters, prostitutes in Jesus' line. We have uh, Bathsheba included in Jesus' descendants and now Ruth. So that's all very interesting, but I think there's a, another application we can make here. I think there's something that's very personal, something very deep to us that we need to think about as we read accounts like this. And I think that is a question of idolatry. Did you see that in the text? Back then, the desire for children to make your life count was so strong. Having heirs to carry on your family line was one of the most important things. Remember how devastating it's been for Sarah. Her barrenness was difficult. Later in Genesis, it's, remember Rachel is married to Jacob. Rachel and, Rachel and Leah both married. And Rachel feels worthless to Jacob because she can't have children. But Leah can. And it comes, it comes up over and over in the scriptures how important this is. And for Lot's daughters, having children, I think was their idol. It was so strong that it makes them do something they normally would have despised. Now, I, part of uh, Sunday school now when you uh, are the preacher is you go talk about this, the text and your sermon with the high school class. So they challenged me a little bit on that point. They said, uh, hey, was it important for, their, for, the, for the daughters to have children of their own? It seems like the text is saying that they wanted heirs for their father. And I think that's very possible. Either way, 
I see a real idol in their lives that drives them to do what they did. And so we have to ask ourselves, what are the idols in our lives that are so important that we would do anything to get them? Have you set your sights on a particular job or a level of wealth that you are willing to do anything for, that you would lie, cheat, steal to achieve? Who are you trying to model your life after? Why are you trying to impress and please other people? I remember teaching youth group one time using a song that had just come out, Kelly Clarkson, My Life Would Suck Without You. And I said, just put a blank instead of you. My life would suck without what? What would make your life so empty if you didn't have that? Of course, they all said Jesus, and that was the point, but if they were honest, there are things in our lives that they would miss so much that they would feel like life was horrible. And that's a really good indication of what your idols are. I'm pretty sure I have a lot of idols in my life. In fact, I asked the high school Sunday school class to list them. That's a little dangerous. They said coffee. That was the first thing. Yes, my life would suck without coffee. All right, I got that. Guitars. Um, My children, my, my extended family, they said, I thought, wow, they know me a little better than I know my, I mean, I care to admit. I, I, I realized my wanting to impress my, especially my brother and my dad who are also pastors. That drives me. I was impressed they got that. My house, my car, competitiveness. They said that was an idol for me. Being young. Um, security. And then, of course, one, I was surprised, actually, they waited for a while. The Steelers. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently, usually that's the first thing they say. But um, being consumed with the success or failure of the Pittsburgh Steelers is surely one of my idols. And, and when I spend all my money on season tickets or paint my house black and gold, <laughs> feel free to stage an intervention <laughs> and stop that. But you know, they didn't get all my idols, and I think like most men, I'm more often consumed with being good at my job and being known for what I do. We talked about how men want to be respected and uh, accomplish things. And I guess I just thought after 15 years of being a youth pastor that I'd be this experienced youth pastor who was able to dispense wisdom to my fellow youth pastors and my youth group would just be growing and prospering well God has a way of knocking out our idols right in front of us doesn't he I was at a I was at lunch with a group of youth pastors and they were not necessarily bragging but just talking about the great kickoff events that they had had for their youth ministries in the past month and and how big contests and events and a hundred kids. And 
I, I was like, Skip, we had five kids at our kickoff night. There were a lot of reasons for that. We had some schedule changes. Um, but the point is that I had to deal with that in my heart, my idol of success and appearance. And God has brought me to that point of weakness to help me deal with it. And I have to ask myself, is that my identity? Is my self-worth going to be defined by what I achieve and how well I do? By how smart or competent I am? How, how great my kids turn out? Or could I truly be defined by who I am in Christ? I saw a quote uh, well, the very classic quote is by John Calvin, our, our hearts are idle factories. If you replace one, you're just gonna come up with a new one. But Ralph Waldo Emerson, not, not necessarily the greatest Christian thinker ever, has a great quote. He says, a person will worship something. Have no doubt about that. We may think our tribute is paid in secret, in the dark recesses of our hearts, but it will come out. That which dominates our imaginations and our thoughts will determine our lives and our character. Therefore, it behooves us to be careful what we worship, for what we are worshiping, we are becoming. I thought that was pretty profound. If that's true, and what we're worshiping is what we are becoming. Have we set our hearts on Christ and the things of God? I think we need to worship Jesus a whole lot more passionately. Because ultimately idolatry springs up because we do not worship the one person who alone is worthy of our worship. I, I asked the high school students, how do, we, how do we get rid of these idols? And they said, just burn them, get rid of them. If money's your idol, just throw it away, get rid of it. I said, all right, that's not bad. I remember burning my records as a high school student because I thought they had a grip on me. But I said, the problem with that is something is gonna come in and fill that void. As soon as you knock down one idol, there's others to take its place. And so if you don't replace it with the one who is truly worthy of your worship, you're just gonna keep that cycle of idolatry just like Israel throughout the Old Testament. God is the one who fulfills all of our desires. We have to find that. Our desire is to be known, to be loved, to be part of a family. All of those things either ultimately either lead us to God and bring us blessing or we search for them in all other places, in the wrong places. We worship the wrong things and we make wrecks of our lives trying to find them. And so this story, this account of this twisted family values of Lot and his family is, is shocking 
and ugly. But maybe that's what we need to remind us that that's where false worship leads us. Idolatry bears ugly, rotten fruit. But worshiping our creator, redeemer, sustainer gives us life, abundant life, and eternal life. Our natural state is disgrace, sin, rebellion. We are enemies of God until he changes us. And God overcomes that through the substitutionary atonement of Christ, that he was our substitute. We don't have to pay for our sins with death and hell because Christ paid them for us. So all those who want to lay down their idols and worship the true God say, amen. Father God, thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for the comforting ones. And thank you for the difficult ones. We don't think that we would have put together the Bible like you did. But we acknowledge that the Holy Spirit was in charge of the whole process and teaches us in every part of the Bible who you are, who your character is, what you've done, what you call us to. Lord, we see people who set their hearts on even good things. God, so many of our idols can be good things. Our families, our jobs. Some idols are not worthy of ever setting attention to, but many are good. And yet, pursuing them above all other things, Lord, putting them before you makes them idols and keeps us from worshiping you. Lord, idolatry is the human condition. Believer and unbeliever alone. I pray that as we worship you, as we find who you are, that we would identify the idols in our lives and that you would help us to recognize the worth we put on them and then destroy them and make them not mean so much to us, but that we would live our lives as testaments to people who have been changed, to people who were dead in their sins and you made alive in Christ, that our lives are completely different. We are new creations in Christ and our hearts should beat with the spirit and not with the flesh. God, teach us to live our lives as thanksgiving to you and acknowledging your greatness.